This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 109. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. We actually have a lot to get to today. I know, right? Like, I'm so used to us in the pandemic stretches where we were doing them every week for a bit. And we were kind of scrambling for content, let's be honest. Like, we were trying to gin up something out of nothing. And we went to the bi-weekly, and then all of a sudden everything exploded. So Yeah, it's, it's yeah. been absolutely wild. So let's just get into it right away. I guess the first NHL-specific news that we have is the results of the draft lottery. <laughs> oh, man. This is the funniest possible outcome. It is, With right? So one those, exception. There's one way it could know, go wrong, but yeah, um, it's good. Yeah, for those who don't know, the, the NHL draft lottery was like a, a conditional two-stage thing this year where the losers of the eight play-in rounds, which have, of course, not been played yet, um, were essentially given placeholders with odds replicating that of the of of what like the other non lottery teams would be the the eight through fourteenth teams uh, in a regular NHL season, mm. and uh, it was decided that the losers of the play ins would be assigned uh, randomly to those positions if any one of those positions won one of the three lotteries for the top three picks, and it turns out. One of those positions did win those uh, one of those lotteries, and in fact won the main lottery, the one to get the first overall pick. So the first overall pick is undetermined as of right now. Right. One of the teams that loses a play-in series, which could include the Pittsburgh Penguins, or the Toronto Maple Leafs, or the Montreal Canadiens, or any of several other teams, one of them is going to get Alexis Lafreniere, who is the consensus first overall pick in the draft. I think this is actually good, probably, because there's a chance that we would get him. And two, it means that neither Detroit nor Ottawa got him. And that's very funny to me. Yeah, from because... the Leafs' perspective, this was actually a very, very good draft uh, lottery. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, one, among the worst possible situations could have happened to Ottawa. They, they had two great picks, so they're going to get two great players no matter what. Yeah. Or, um, or at least two great prospects. But they got three and five, which was... You know, not the best outcome for them. Detroit dropped three spots into fourth position. So, from a least perspective, this looks good. And as you said, we have a... If we lose to Columbus, we have a one and eight shot at Lafreniere. Right, so that's pretty good. And also, it's worth noting the second overall pick, who is expected to be Quinton Byfield, although there's a chance it'll be Tim Stutzel. That's kind of a subject of debate. That's going to Los Angeles. So again, that's out of division. So by and large, from a Leafs perspective, not that we were super invested in the draft lottery before, but this went about as well as it could have. Now, as I mentioned, the only way that this could be bad for us is if Montreal wins it. And then they get their uh, French-Canadian hometown superhero, and he torments us forever, and then it's not so fun anymore. But pretty much any other outcome, I'm kind of fine with. Yeah, pretty much. Um... I don't think this creates like I still want to beat Columbus, right? Like, 100%. I, I think people are overstating. It's a one in eight shot. Like the the, if you lose the playing round, yeah, you you have something where you can kind of say, oh, you know, we still have a shot at Lafreniere, and then, um, you know, a, a ping pong ball gets drawn, and more likely than not, you will end up with nothing. Yeah, and you have to like account for that. I think realistically, 
you know, people talk about this as like a failed incentive. No team that's in the play play in round is going to not try to win. You know, the players are all there. They're competitive people. They've agreed to show up. I think that they'll all be playing hard. This is the kind of thing that's like a consolation thought if you lose the play-in round. And so then there's a second lottery that will happen after. Anyway, so this was a cause of great excitement. Uh, Understandably, a lot of Detroit fans were upset, which, you know, I get. But on the other hand, whatever. So, (laughs) yeah, that was uh, sort of the legal-wide news. Um, Maybe closer to home, quite literally, Toronto, it looks like, is going to be a hub city for the upcoming playoffs. Looks like Toronto and Edmonton are going to be the two locations where these games are played. Uh, The league decided, probably correctly, that trying to conduct any kind of normal playoff with teams flying all over the country was not viable in the age of COVID. So what they're doing is picking two hubs that are going to host all of the games. Uh, The Leafs look like they're going to have all the Eastern games. Edmonton looks like it's going to have all the Western games. And then the finals are probably going to be in Edmonton. This is a bit interesting because for the longest time, it was assumed that Las Vegas would be one of the two hub cities. Uh, The COVID situation in the United States has kind of deteriorated in the last month or so, uh, including in uh, the Southwest. Whereas the situation in Canada, knocking aggressively on wood here, has been improving. Case counts have been declining, death counts have been declining. And so I guess, you know, the situation changed so that the league finally said, okay, we're going to put them both in Canada. Yeah. I don't know that this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I don't really have a ton to say about this. It's, I mean, as a resident of of Toronto and the GTA, I'm not in love with this i think it i mean there's there's no way to have a zero risk situation mm-hmm. right um and you know frankly from a governmental perspective i, I think if they're obviously going to have to jump through hoops to some extent to get the nhl to play here and um you know there, there's certainly some focus and effort being put into that and i, I think obviously there are more important things perhaps the most important of which is child care and school schooling, which, you know, without which a huge portion of the population cannot return to normalcy. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I mean, it's not necessarily like a mutually exclusive thing. It's not like because they're doing this, they can't also work on, on child care and school and getting that back up to, to something approaching normalcy. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I have a weird feeling about this where I, I'm, I'm not in love with it. It, it. it says something to me that the NHL didn't go with Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Because Vancouver uh, and BC in general has had lower case counts than Ontario and Toronto, respectively. Um, and, you know, certainly compared to Edmonton, Vancouver is considered a nicer, more enjoyable city. There's more to do. It's bigger. It, it seems like that would be an obvious choice. And the reporting I've seen, although not really anything incredibly substantiated, was that Vancouver and BC's government essentially said thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, it's hard to make out exactly what happened here, and I don't want to misstate it, but the impression that I got was that uh, there were certain things that would have to be allowed in terms of when players are permitted to play in the context of testing, and Vancouver basically said, okay, we're not going to do that, or I should say BC said that, 
and Ontario was more obliging. And so you get into a situation where it looks like Vancouver lost out for its strictness in controlling coronavirus, which has been successful. Vancouver and British Columbia have done a great job at this. And so it almost makes it sound like the NHL settled on, we want somewhere that did a good job, but not too good a job controlling the coronavirus. And that's a bit perverse, kind of. I don't think that, you know, and this is obviously orders of magnitude less important. I don't think that there's really any meaningful competitive advantage for the Leafs from this. You know, they're going to be in a semi-quarantine bubble too. And most of the teams are going to be coming from the same time zone. They're all going to be there. So it's not like anyone's got massive amounts of travel. So I, contra what, you know, a bunch of paranoid people are saying online, I don't think this really benefits Toronto in any significant way. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's a thing. I keep kind of wrestling with, are they going to be able to do this? How far is it going to get? Are we going to have you know, a last minute shutdown at the end of July where they lose control of the situation and say, okay, we can't run a playoffs as we've been anticipating doing. And I honestly have no idea. Uh, it is worth noting that there are negotiations ongoing right now for a new collective bargaining agreement between the players union and the league. Uh, it looks like they kind of want to take this opportunity to negotiate a, a settlement for the next six years or so where a lot of the issues that are going to come out of this, including a massive blow to revenues and so on, are kind of wrapped up in a bow and at least they have some certainty to operate with. Uh, we don't have that finalized yet, so there'll be a lot of stuff on that on the site when we do. But right now where it seems like is one, it's worth noting the cap is not going up very much or at all in the next few years. And two, as regards return to play, every player is supposed to be able to opt out without penalty is what we've heard leaked, which I think is good and important. You know, ultimately how much of this risk you're okay taking on, I think has to be something that every player decides for themselves uh, up to a point. I'm not sure if it's at the point where, you know, we say, okay, there's just too much risk to let anybody do it because, you know, we've seen it su successfully done with Korean and German sports leagues, for example. But... I do also think it's important that you you accept the situation is very different from what it was when everyone signed their contracts. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really, kind of where we're at. It's really uncertain. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess there's not a lot to do other than wait and see. Right. So that's kind of um, a quick state of the world thing as players start to return and set up for training camps and so on. And we'll see how it evolves as tests come in and how many of them are positive or negative and the situation proceeds. But in the meantime, we thought we would take a look at everyone's favorite topic to get mad online about awards. So. Yes. NHL awards are, are, are great for this. It's just easy fodder to talk about and uh, people just get super mad. Yeah. Very, very upset because inevitably there are different camps in terms of the old school voters who prioritize metrics that maybe don't make sense or mean a whole lot. Uh, the analytics voters who come up with answers that are really counterintuitive and end up often 
going to bat for players who don't really seem like they belong in the conversation to a conventional mind. And so there are all sorts of arguments to go on there. Uh, we're going to try and cover uh, five of the big awards. You know, I don't know that anyone cares too much who wins the Lady Bing, so we left that one out. Uh, but we also added three made-up awards of our own because we thought it would be interesting. And yeah. So shall we start with the big <laughs> the big kahuna, so to speak? Yeah, the might as trophy? well. The Hart Trophy awarded to the best player on a team that is good but not that good. <laughs> That's what it says in the text. No, it, it says the player who is most valuable to his team, which, as Arvin just alluded to, is uh, measured in all sorts of different ways. And so the Hart Trophy is sort of a source of uh, controversy in a given year. Typically, it's awarded only to players on teams that make the playoffs, for one thing. It doesn't really matter how good you are if you couldn't get your team to the playoffs, is the logic. And this has deprived Connor McDavid in the past, for example, when he was consensus the best player in the world. But with the weird sort of play-in situation, there aren't too many contenders who aren't at least in the play-ins. So that issue is sort of mitigated. Yeah. Um, so I guess the main contenders here are Artemi Panarin and uh, Leon Dreisaitl. Yes. So my vote went to Panarin, although with the caveat that last year I voted for Nikita Kucherov, and basically the, the argument for Nikita Kucherov last year is the same as the argument for Leon Dreisaitl this year. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't blame Edmonton fans for getting annoyed that the criteria is switching. In hindsight, if I were to redo my vote last year, I would have voted for Crosby. Uh, and not Kucherov. Uh, yeah, I I think that that's fair. And I think Crosby had a really interesting heart case that year that was maybe under-discussed because he had such a great defensive season. But Nikita Kucherov still drives play to a large extent. I'm not saying he's a great de defensive player. But Leon Dreisaitl's teams get killed defensively to the point where he basically needs his shooting, which is amazing, to kind of outstrip his actual effect on the play, which is often kind of bad. Now, there are a lot of clouding factors there, which is one, obviously, Tampa's 100 times better than Edmonton. But I kind of get more and more leery of Dorsado's results just because he looks like a really one-way player. He looks like Super Thomas Vanek or something. You know, where he has great, great, great offensive production. But the defense is closer to canceling it out than I am kind of comfortable with. And I struggle with how to rate that. Now, you can say we don't always have perfect measures of defense, which is true. Um, maybe Edmonton is being coached to play this way for Dracidal and McDavid. McDavid has the same problem. And all of that is valid. However, Artemi Panarin, on a team that is complete garbage, frankly, <laughs> aside from him and a couple other players, has good results in terms of driving play. And again, Panarin's not a great defensive player either. But he's pushing the play the right way, and he's producing. I still think the Leandro Settle argument is basically look at all the points. Right. I, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. Um... But Kucherov's play-driving numbers this year are not that much better than 
or sorry, two drops per numbers last year are not that much better than Dreisaitl's this year. They're a little bit better, but they're not, not by a huge amount. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I I, I, I do think, yeah, the argument for Kucherov last year and for Dreisaitl this year is look at the points, right? And mm-hmm. with Kucherov especially, it was a stunning point total um, yeah. that we hadn't seen in quite a while. And I think Dreisaitl suffers from the fact that we saw Kucherov put up a similar number of points last year. So now no longer feels as unprecedented. Yeah, and I mean, Dresaito would have had to go like two points a game um, to catch Kucherov, probably, or close to it, um, down the stretch. Like, I, I think Kuch- he, he had a lot of points. I can check that he now. Did. But Yeah, no, no, it would have been close, but Dresaito finished with 110 mm-hmm. um, this season. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, you can say, like, look, Dresaito, you know, contributed to putting the puck in the net for his team when he's on the ice, and maybe sometimes you don't have to overthink it too much. Uh, He won the Art Ross by a wide margin over his teammate, Connor McDavid. Uh, He was the best player in the league in points per game, too. You know, McDavid missed a couple games with injury, but Dressetto was outpacing him anyway. You know, you have to respect the achievement, and that's certainly true. I just find myself thinking, okay, Panarin's on a team that's bad. And he basically dragged them kicking and screaming to a playoff E spot in this weird world that we live in now. Yeah, and the, the goal difference with and without Panarin on the ice is just stunning. Stunning. I, I mix stunning and staggering there, but it, it's, yeah, it's I both. think we need to invent a word for it. Because it's it is staggering. That. It's, it's in some new sort of space. And yeah, you know... There's also an issue here about goal differential and like, do you do something with goals for, and this is something that interests me. Now, goals for percentage is just, you know, the percentage of goals that your team gets when you're on the ice, usually at five on five, we talk about it. And I always remember Katya's quote about it being basically plus minus with nerd glasses on, which is sort of true. It's basically an improvement on that. But if you look at play driving metrics and they're not very good, then you have to say in defense of someone like Josidal, okay, maybe those metrics are what they are, but he has great shooting talent. He has an above average ability to make sure that the chances his team gets when he's on go in the net. And the only way we can measure that is by getting goals. And so to some extent, I kind of find myself saying, okay, maybe you have to account for that a bit. Panarin's goals for is ridiculous. Like, when he's on, the Rangers were destroying worlds. When he was off, they were dead. Dracidal is narrowly positive. Yeah, it, it, th- that's the thing. When you talk, when you look at goals or impacts, mm-hmm. um, and you look at, like, the regression-based methods, and e- even though this is essentially kind of, as Katya says, plus or minus with, with nerd glasses, um, yeah. because you're looking at something that's inherently noisy, and you're, you're attributing credit to it. So it, it's, it's not necessarily caused by the player. It's more associated with the player. But either way... Panarin was associated with better goal outperformance this year than than Dreisaitl. So in the end, I I did end up, I think I would vote for Panarin, and I wouldn't actually think, like, I think it's a comfortable vote. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think more, I I recognize that last year I probably got it wrong in voting for Kucherov. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I have to admit, I made a argument for Kucherov that was what I basically called, sometimes it's cool when people do cool shit. And 
that was partly based on just Kucherov setting up a number that we had not seen in years and years. Dracidal is kind of deprived of the opportunity to do that, as you said, because Kucherov just did it. So, <laughs> I do understand where Edmonton fans are coming from, and I will say I don't think it's absurd to give this to Dracidal. Like, I think some people, especially in the analytics community, it's almost a punchline to vote for Dracidal just because he has a lot of points, but some other things don't look very good. I don't think it's it's dumb. I think you could make a, a case for him that's coherent. I just, I would give it to, to Panarin because he, as far as I can tell, had the best overall season and put a team on his back, basically, almost alone. And so, yeah, I respect that. One other thing I'd want to note, just for some Leafs content, Austin Matthews is way closer to this conversation than he's ever been before by most metrics. Like, I think that if I did a ballot of five different names, which is what you do if you vote on the Hart Trophy for real, I think I would get him on my ballot. Yeah, I think there's a justifiable argument for him anywhere between three and five. Maybe three is mm-hmm. a bit um, optimistic. I'm guessing Nathan McKinnon's going to win third spot, but like, yeah. I, I think Matthews has been relatively close to that level all year. Yeah, uh, you know, two-way impacts are great. Shooting impacts are great. And so, yeah, it's an encouraging thing if you're a Leafs fan is how well Matthews seems to have done. And that's something to keep an eye on going forward because in the end, you know, we're we're hopeful that he's that kind of player that is in the conversation for the heart. So if that's what you've been waiting around on, this is the first year where I think it's worth discussing. Uh, he's not at the point of winning it, but he's at the point where he doesn't have to go that far before it becomes a real discussion of him winning it in years to come. Yep, I uh, I agree. Yeah, so do, do you want to move on to the Norris? Sure. So Norris is, I mean, always tricky. Um, it takes a lot of effort to go to NHL.com slash stats, filter by defenseman, <laughs> and then sort descending by points. <laughs> and you know what? I unironically did that when I started looking at this because I was like, look, no one who doesn't get 45 points or more as a defenseman or so is ever going to win a Norris. You know, <laughs> like it's just it's not going to happen. And so I kind of said, okay, that has to be play some rule in how I set my pool of players, even if I think it's kind of silly. Um, but yeah, so I went with Roman Yossi on this one. Right, so uh, why, why Yossi? Right, so, I mean, okay. I apologize for how old school I'm going to sound in situations here. I'm generally pretty skeptical of defenseman points. I think they mean a little bit. You know, like, I think that they mean you have a baseline involvement in your team's play. Uh, They can also indicate, you know, whether you're a contributor on the power play and stuff like that. Rio C is second in defenseman points. That shouldn't really determine it, but it's something. He has really positive on-ice impacts. I look at isolated threat. I tend to rely on that one a lot, and it's pretty encouraging. And I'm going to probably sell out all my nerd cred in the next couple minutes. The Norris is kind of gets ragged on sometimes for being a bit of a lifetime achievement award, where players, uh, like famously Drew Doughty, 
kind of just win it because they're supposed to have won one. And that makes people mad because that's not supposedly what the award is for. It's supposed to award the best defenseman. But the truth is, I think we have a hard time evaluating defensemen. It's a hard thing to do. And one of the ways to get better at it is to improve the sample size. And I think, from a certain perspective, the kind of what has he done overall in his career is a backdoor way to improve the sample size. Now, it doesn't mean that you should start using his collective plus minus or some shit like that. But in a way of avoiding like, oh, I just kind of fell for this one defenseman who had a really hot ear or something like, you know, I can think of a lot of defensemen who kind of popped up for a bit. Shane Goss's beer comes to mind where, you know, he's one throwaway example, but he's one guy who had a really great year by certain metrics and you could have been kind of talked into him. And then the Norris vote looks silly down the line. Roman Yossi, I'm confident, is like a very serious number one defenseman and has been for a long time. In voting for him, I feel like that's the kind of vote where if I look back on it in two or three years, I'm not going to feel like I really botched it. I'll feel like I gave it to a great defenseman who was worthy. That doesn't preclude giving it to any of a couple other guys. I mostly just want it to go to him over John Carlson, who I genuinely do not think is that good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Did you consider Ryan Ellis? Um, I thought about it. Yossi's teammate. Yeah, and you know what? This was a, a bit of a he's not even the, the best drummer in the Beatles sort of thing, where I was like, okay, but I think Yossi is better than Ellis. And I think Yossi has been better than Ellis this year. I know that there's a case for Ellis, though. Cause yeah, Ellis' play driving yeah. numbers are stronger. Um, less value in terms of less individual offense, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, you can say, especially if you're a Washington Capitals fan, hey, individual offense is John Carlson's whole entire thing, and you just discounted it a little bit. And my point is, I'm not saying it's worth nothing. I'm saying it's pretty much all John Carlson has. And even though he has a lot of it, I'm not that impressed. But I think you can say, look, Ryan Ellis is great. It's also probably fair to say that, you know, Nashville as a whole has always had great defensemen. And maybe there's some collective impact there. I don't know. That gets a bit more speculative on my part. But Yeah, I was debating between Ellis and Petrangelo, Alex Petrangelo of the St. Louis mm-hmm. Blues. Had a very good year as well. Again, Ellis has has better play driving numbers, and it's not like Ellis doesn't get points. I think he has like thirty eight points in, in forty eight games. I think the missed time hurts Ellis a little bit. Um, yeah, there's also a question here of how many games do you need to be yeah. a contender for an individual trophy. So yeah, um, but ultimately, I'd go with Petrangelo. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know he he's among the best defensemen in the game. Obviously, he showed that last year during the playoffs as well. Really consistent throughout. Um, I, I sound like I'm just saying a lot of platitudes at this point, but th- there's not a, I, there's not a ton to say about him besides the fact that he is just a very good, complete, solid all-round defenseman. Yeah, he can really do everything. Like, there's not really a weak spot in his game. It's also worth noting that all that stuff I talked about about you know the Norris rewarding very good, high-level, elite, consistent defensemen. All of that applies to Petrangelo, who is at least equally entitled with Yossi. And so, you know, I I think I would accept it if it went to really any of a couple of guys. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's mostly just the weakness for this ward award excuse me is that sometimes i think it does just go to look at all the offense and that kind of annoys me once it goes to someone who i'm like okay that's a genuinely good defenseman then I'm kind of okay with it, and I'm open to a lot of top-end options. In we any still have such year. error bars in evaluating defensemen relative to forward that right. I, I'm always a lot less certain of my pick for the Norris than I am for my pick for the Hart, and the Hart almost always goes to a forward. Yeah, yeah, pretty much exclusively. And, you know, so... Basically, just don't give it to, like, Carlson or D'Angelo or Brent Burns or anything like that. I mean, Brent Burns, no one's giving it to him anymore, but... Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. I think the Norris is also, like, it's one of those things where when you get a pet pick, you get very annoyed when other people don't seem to appreciate it. You're like, no, I've seen this guy. I've seen what he can do. And everyone is saying that about, like, you know, 12 different defensemen. It's like, he just happens to be your personal favorite. But, yeah, if this award goes to either Yossi or Petrangelo or Ellis, I, I would respect any of those choices. So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, ready for the Calder? Yeah. So I think we have the same take here, which might be a little spicy for, for some people, and that's going with Adam Fox of yes. the New York Rangers. So, and I this mean, is you the Rangers this me. year were really yeah. like, you know, Artemi Panera and Mika Zibanejad, Adam Fox, and then a lot of guys who are kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I originally wanted to give this to Quinn Hughes. The conventional wisdom is that this is going to go to Hughes and McCarr, Kale McCarr of the uh, Colorado Avalanche, who are both great young defensemen. And I was like, okay, that's pretty much where we're at. It should be one of them. And I was comparing them, and I looked in Quinn Hughes. And then I started actually looking at it, also after talking to you, and you're like, Adam Fox. Adam Fox has had an insane season. Like, really, really good. Ridiculously good. And... He's played with Artemi Panarin. True. But the thing is, is that the other two guys have also played with high-end forwards. You know, it's not like Elias Pettersson's a scrub or anything like that. Yeah, like, I'm, they play with Elias Pettersson and Nathan McKinnon, right? Like it's... Yeah. And, uh, you know, Pettersson, we didn't mention him on the heart belt this year, and I, I don't think he's quite there. But could he win a heart in his career? Absolutely. I, I think he's also in that kind of... Th- off the top of my head, that three to five range or three to six would be in some order: um, Pedersen, McDavid, Matthews, McKinnon. I think that that's fair. So yeah, I mean, you get to a point where it sort of cancels out. You say, okay, they're all playing with great players, and then you have to start looking at Adam Fox. Now, the thing about the Calder is that there's always a bit of a shadowy discussion of how old are these guys because that doesn't technically count. Right? Like, that's not actually supposed to be part of uh, the conversation that like you have. Like when Panarin won the Calder. <laughs> yeah, which was kind of funny. Um, so, you know, the fact that uh, Fox is a year and a half older than Quinn Hughes, that probably is a factor in Hughes being a better overall prospect, but the question isn't who's the best prospect, it's who's the best rookie this year. And so once you put them on that equal footing, I think Fox has a much stronger case than is popularly acknowledged. Yeah, he's not a better prospect than these guys, but no, he had a better year, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're not, and it's not the same thing. Right. 
And yeah, it, it's just, it's very hard to separate out that influence. Also, it's, you have to acknowledge when you have defensemen who look like they drive offense, that can be a bit of a, of a shaky thing to bet on because all of these guys are playing with forwards that we know drive offense, as we said. But then once you kind of account for that, you still have to say, look, when Adam Fox is on the ice, his teams are kicking ass. They're doing really well. And, you know, most of the eye test accounts speak to him as a great transition player. Um, I, I probably had a bit of bias, I won't lie, because I've kind of salivated over how good Quinn Hughes' game is. Just because he has so many qualities that I admire in a defenseman. But, yeah, I mean, I think all things being equal, Fox is probably the guy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't think he will win it. I think Hughes actually will win it. Or possibly McCarr, but it'll be one of them. But that was just sort of a... Something that really came to us as we looked at it. The Vesna, I don't think, is all that hard this year. <laughs> yeah. Um. And actually, let let's just say, okay, it's gonna be Connor Hellebuck. And I have another comment about the the yeah. Calder. And we, this, who cares about Winnipeg? Like we can. That's yeah, all our discussion. Connor Hellebuck wins it. When it, Winnipeg is bad, Hellebuck made them respectable pretty much by himself. Give him the Vesna. It's not even a question. Hellebuck Over. has an outside heart case, but I think we've just decided that goalies shouldn't win the heart or something. Yeah, like, unless it's Carey Price. Like, yeah, that yeah. one year. Um, but but Hellebuck has had a season where it's like he was head and shoulders above everyone else. So, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the thing is, I said this was our last talk about the Vesna, and I'm just going to talk about it a bit more. But with yeah. giving goalies the heart, like, realistically, if we're saying, if we're including goalies in the heart, we should just give the best goalie the heart every single year. Yeah. Because the best goalie is always more in fact, impactful than the best anything else, because goalies are that important in hockey. Right. And just the tricky thing about goaltenders is one they're unpredictable and you kind of have no idea and so that randomness clouds our opinion of it and two the difference with replacement level or like good starting goalies is in most cases not that big it's like it's a really really rare goalie who consistently adds that super above average value like Carey Price did it for a couple of years uh, Roberto Luongo I think did it for a very long time but, like, by and large, we just don't know how to factor them in. So we've just been like, okay, they get the Vesna. Yeah. So, yeah. On the Calder, mm-hmm. this is the first time in a while that I think all three nominees or the top three finishers are going to be defensemen, right? Like, normally there's a forward yes. in there. Yeah. And uh, it's been interesting. Now, you know, when, first of all, you look at who the forwards might be, you look at the top picks in the most recent draft. And Jack Hughes and Capo Caco both had awful years. Uh, Kako had an infamously terrible year. It's so bad that you just kind of have to be like, I don't really know what to do with him at this point. Again, it's really hard to play in the NHL as an 18-year-old, and I don't think people always get that because it's so rare for anyone to even do it. But, like, he had a terrible season. (laughs) It was not good at all. No, it looked like he didn't belong in the NHL. At all. And, you, you know, realistically, he probably should not have been in the NHL. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're we're in a bit of that weird situation. I mean, the uh, the best forward is probably Dominic Kubelik. Well, and if you're saying who, I think that kind of demonstrates... Like, yeah. he's, he's on Chicago, right? He had, like, a sneaky 30-goal year. 
Yes, he did. Yeah. And I actually remember because he got a hat trick. Yeah, he scored against, against the Leafs. I remember that. Yes, he did. Well, I mean, doesn't. And I was like, oh, anyone can score against the Leafs. Dominic Kubalik, who is that? He probably has never scored it before or since in his life. But he's actually had a very productive season. But when you're a forward and you finish with fewer points than the leading defenseman for the Calder, that's going to tend to tell against your case a little bit. Yeah, I don't remember that particular game. Was that one of the games where, like, our goaltending was just... I think that was a game where Leafs Twitter, like, just got fed up with Freddie because I think he, he let in some really soft ones that game. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of those. That's true. I will be honest. It was a tough year. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know what? I may be misremembering whether or not he actually got a hot tri- a hat trick on us. He did score against us, and it was very painful and sad. And so, yeah, that was kind of the bottom line there. Uh, yeah, oh, sorry. He had uh, two goals and an assist hmm. in a game against Toronto on uh, January 18th. So, yeah, anyway, that's uh, very interesting that this is like the year of defensemen. It's possible that the top three on the ballot will all be defensemen. I don't know what the credit is for Adam Fox. For what it's worth, uh, Fox actually has a dominant plus minus, which we don't believe in, but some people do. And so, yeah, that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. It's certainly quite a crop of defensemen. Yes, um, very much so. Um, what's next, Selkie? That's the last Selkie. real award, correct? Yep, that's okay. the last of the ones we're going to bother with. Yeah, on the real one. Yeah. Uh, you can go <laughs> lots of different routes here. You can kind of give the old faithful and just give it to Bruce Bergeron. You're not, no I'm one's going like, to say, no one's going to really insult you for that. That's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't want to give this to Patrice Bergeron. One, he's boring. Two, he's a Boston Bruin. But... He's the center on what I consider the best line in hockey. His impacts are still ridiculous. This year, they're still really good. Uh, he's one of the few guys who's so good at face-offs that it probably matters a little bit. I'm not saying it matters a lot, but he can actually make a difference by winning 58% of the time. Uh, I don't like this, but like I look at him and I think, okay, who do I actually think is the best center at controlling play in both directions. And I think it's still him. So, I yeah. would go for Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, Ryan O'Reilly is credible. I think, honestly, I thought of four guys who I thought were all kind of in the running here. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went for Bergeron because he scares me the most. Yeah. But they were I mean, Bergeron, seen, Ryan O'Reilly. We've seen a lot uh, of them. Um, O'Reilly also, then, there, two things yeah. kind of tipped it for me for O'Reilly. Uh, the first is... He played 10 more games, which is not nothing. That's true. That's fair. Right. 71 versus 61 games. The second mm-hmm. is his numbers are slightly better, right? Um, mm-hmm. In a vacuum, I probably think Bergeron's a little bit better, but I, I think O'Reilly had a better year and he played more. So that's what made me vote for him. I think that's fair. That's that's legitimate. And, you know, I'm certainly... Bergeron's legacy is playing a role here, for sure, for me. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, guys it's not are, like, yeah. I mean, not to throw any shade at, at um, Evolving Wild, who, who are, you know, great statistical uh, analysts for the community and have done a lot. But this mm-hmm. isn't like a Val Nachushkin situation where you're, you're looking at a guy and it's like, oh, he doesn't even belong in here just based on like the name value. Like Ryan O'Reilly's been known as one of the best 
two-way players of his generation. Oh, yeah. No, he's in the, I mean, he's won this before. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, I, I think that, honestly, the, the four players who were in serious Selkie contention were Bergeron, O'Reilly, Sean Couturier for Philadelphia, and then Anthony Cirelli for Tampa Bay. And Cirelli's kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak. Um... I think it's, you know, we also have to note, and everyone has said, the Selkie has become really a two-way award. You must have this much offense to get on the ride kind of thing. Like, they're not going to give it to the best defensive center in the world if he only gets 20 points a year. Um, And I don't think that that's actually that unreasonable, to be totally honest with you. Like, I think that if you have no meaningful offensive contribution, that probably suggests something. But, uh, yes, so Chirelli is kind of maybe a step down offensively from some of these guys because Bergeron, O'Reilly, and Couture can all also produce at an elite level or at least a very high-end level. Chirelli produces at a quite good level. But it'll be worth keeping an eye on him going forward. I do also think Chirelli probably also takes a bit of a hit because he plays for Tampa, and there's almost an incredulity that all of their players can be this good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he plays a ton of his minutes with Victor Hedman. But, you know, still, he's done the job at a very high level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it, it's yeah. very possible he, he wins a, a Selkie in the future. The Selkie almost has, like, an apprenticeship program where it's like you have to be talked about it, about as being in contention for it for, like, two or three years before you get to win it. And I feel like Couturier is nearing the end of that process and could win. And Chirelli is kind of starting it. And if he keeps doing this, eventually they'll just give it to him. Yeah, I, I agree. Sorelli yeah. is very young. He's 22. Yeah, he's got a lot of time to come at this. Whereas Bergeron is 34. Like, I don't know how many more of these Bergeron's going to win. But he could win this one. So I guess we'll see. Yes. All right, cool. Uh, so now we move to the, the part that everyone's been waiting for. Um, <laughs> our made-up award. So what is our first made-up award, Fuleman? Our first made-up award was the worst cap hit for a player under 30. Worst contract. So the, uh, sorry? Worst contract, not worst cap hit. Oh, okay. Well, fine. Worst contract for a player under 30. You see, I've already botched our first award. The idea was, players over 30, it's kind of obvious. The worst contract in the league is probably Brent Seabrook, except it'll probably be LTIR, so maybe it's Bobrovsky or Price. But, like, all of those are kind of clear. You've heard us talk about them. They're really bad. They're boat anchor contracts. Really bad contracts for players under 30 gets kind of more interesting. Right. And I believe we're, we're saying these are contracts where the player has to be under 30 throughout, correct? Uh, I said under 30 right now. Oh, under 30 right now. Did yeah. uh, How old was Bobrovsky when he signed it? Uh, was he, he 29? Th- oh, no, he was exactly no, 30. Was- he was, he was exactly 30, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, I had them as of the date of this podcast, so... Oh, okay, okay. That's fine, too. That's fine, too. Um, yeah. Yeah, because if, if Bobrovsky was, like, 29 in 364 days, he probably would win it. Because <laughs> 10 yeah. million for a goalie who is not that good right now is just horrific. Yeah. Giant goalie contracts go to the top of the list. Yeah. Just don't With... sign giant goalie contracts ever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've seen this get ugly before. But for a player under 30, it's interesting because, theoretically, they have a lot of time left on their 
on the good part, or at least the not disastrous part of their aging curve. And so somebody had to screw up somewhere for them to get this bad. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I really thought this was going to be Rasmus Ristolainen. Yeah, I think we designed this award for Rasmus Ristolainen. That was the point. We kind of have to dunk on Rasmus Ristolainen at least every six weeks, or it becomes a question of what are we doing. And he's in contention for this award. I really kind of wanted to give it to him. Just to recap, Rasmus Ristolainen has some of the worst impacts on play we've ever seen. They're gross. He looks like a very sub-replacement level defenseman. Like, depending on how much you want to trust this, there are metrics that would suggest you would be better off getting a guy on waivers and plopping him into the rest of his spot. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean... You can debate whether or not you think that's actually true and what Risto could do in a third-pair role on a team that isn't Buffalo. Uh, but the, the fact is it's not going well. However, Risto has two years left after this one at $5.4 million. Right, that's the critical and, thing. We're, we're judging the contracts as they are now. When Risto signed, mm-hmm. like, then it would be, this would be, it'd be more competitive in this race because there was so much term on it. But at this point, it's almost like which under-30 contract would a team least like to acquire? Yes. Right? And like, there's only two years left. Exactly. Like, at this point, I mean, Buffalo should still unload him if they can, and I have no idea how valuations of Ristolainen go on around the league at this point, because at some points he's been reputed to be worth a hell of a lot, and maybe teams have figured it out by now. But, like, at this point, it's like, okay, it's, it's kind of survivable. They're trying to come back now. It's, it will end. As long as they don't sign him to a fat extension, and I know I just gave our Buffalo listeners nightmares because they might. But you have to look at some of the other options. Now, there's a big one here, and it gives me a lot of pause, and it's Jacob Truba. He plays for the New York Rangers. This has been kind of a rangers theme podcast, actually. Yeah, it has. And he's got six years after this one and eight million. He's had a rough year. Now... Obviously, Truba's a way better player than Rasmus Ristolainen, but he's been asked to be a number one defenseman now, which I think a lot of us thought he was at least close to being able to do. I, I certainly did. Defenseman. Yeah, and it hasn't been working. Hasn't been going very well at all. Maybe it's a bad year. Maybe it's a blip. If it's not, six more years after this one at $8 million is a lot of excess value for a long time. I was 26 now, but like that will actually stretch into the bad part of his age curve for one thing, but it's a lot of money. And it's possible that the lost value, if he can't get his shit together, is going to dwarf what's left on Risto's. Yeah. So, yeah. I, th- that's I think something... that's a valid selection. Yeah, it it gives me a lot of pause. That wasn't my choice, Mm -hmm. but I really had to think about it. Basically, part of the reason I shied away from it is because I still think Truba is good and that he'll, I think he'll look better than he has this year. But if he doesn't, that's going to be bad. However, okay, so I'll name one other one beforehand that I didn't pick, but it was another one that was in the running. And you suggested this one was Alexander Wenberg. Wenberg's actually my pick. Yeah, okay. Do you want to make the case for him? 
Sure. I mean, I think Wenberg's... Act- I think he's a decent player at, like, half of what he's making. The thing is, mm-hmm. his offense has just completely dried up. He's still an okay play driver, right? Yeah. Um, He still has some utility, but he just cannot score now. At all. Right? So, like, um, he, yeah. he's, he's like an <laughs> average-ish uh, play driver. Who, in prior years, he had actually quite quite strong numbers. He's had, he's had some good years and some bad years, a bit up and down. But... Basically, this year he he's uh, he got twenty points and twenty two points in fifty seven games. I'm not someone who worships at the altar of points, but that's not really good for about five mil. No. Um, <laughs> and only five of them are goals, so it's a lot of like assists, which I think are kind of less valuable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it it's yeah. In twenty eighteen nineteen, he had two goals the entire season, right? Like it, it's just no offense mm. at all, and I think people don't realize. How kind of bad a contract is because it's on Columbus, um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really, really poor contract, and it, it there's three more years on it at, at four point nine mil for a guy who is who is producing offensively like a fourth liner, maybe drives play like a third liner. Yeah, and that's bad. Like, like people you know, are still people yeah, are saying Kasperi Kapanen at three point two mil is making too much money to be on the third line when he's like a. <laughs> A fine, <laughs> a fine player, but that's silly. Yeah, people are being silly. Yeah, it's it's bad. And you know what? They're using Wenberg in offensive situations, partly because they haven't had much choice given the injuries. But at last report, he was playing on their first line for a bit. You know, that's the thing that gets me is like it's not like he's had no opportunity to put the puck in the net at all. It just it hasn't gone in for him ever it's been rough and so yeah i I mean the other three options are defensemen for for this award at least those were my finalists but wenberg as a forward is rough but i had to give this one to the contract i have understood least of probably any signed recently now to be clear i'm not saying it's necessarily the worst but i don't get it at all it's Michael Matheson for the Florida Panthers. And the Panthers gave him an eight-year extension. It's still got six to go after this one at 4.875. What Mike Matheson does is he plays like a fourth-slash-fifth defenseman. He does very badly. It doesn't work very well, and that's it. I have no idea what they were hoping for here. I guess they thought, you know... He'll step into his own, and then we'll have a guy locked up for turn. It didn't work out at all. He looks like a definitely a third pair guy. It isn't this also compounds one of their other errors? Because isn't Michael Matheson the guy they protected instead of <laughs> Jonathan Marchessault yeah. and Riley Smith? Yes, he is. And so it's very clear that they've made an insane evaluation of him. That frankly is not coherent to me at all. Like, there's just, there's no case for him being worth this contract at all. I don't see it. You have to be convinced that he's, like, a quite good guy. And he's not. Even, like, from the most superficial analysis, he's, like, not in the top three defensemen on their team. And so, yeah, it just, it makes no sense. And so even though I think he's still a better player than Ristolainen... The fact that this runs 
for another six years outweighs the fact that he's better and that he makes about 500 grand less a season. Yeah. I, the, the, the reason I went for Wenberg above Matheson is because I think Matheson is more tradable. Because people misevaluate defensemen more often than people misevaluate forward. I think there, there's no market for a guy producing at fourth line rates making 4.9 mil. You're almost certainly correct about that. I have to say, well, the original evaluation that went into Matheson getting this was so insane to me that it's baffling to me that any one GM made it, even Dale Talon. So I guess it's more possible that another GM might make it. But it's a very pointless contract. It does not serve a purpose that I can discern. Um, so yeah, anyway, like, I'm just, I'm incredulous that this exists, you know? It would be like if we gave, like, I don't know, like, Martin Marincin, like, seven years in his mid-twenties or something. It's like, sure, that'd be hilarious. Well, we kind of have done that just in one-year contract. <laughs> yeah, at 900 grand. And so... <laughs> You know, it's just like, it's such a baffling maneuver, and it's a totally unforced error. Um, there was no need to do this at all, and so now they're stuck with it. Have fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, then we had, what was the worst personnel move in the past year? Like, What was the worst move that a GM made? Right. I think you and I agreed on this. The thing is, it, yes. um, it was actually a little bit hard to find stuff that, that fit into this. I guess if we're, if we're going back to including July 1st of last year. So I guess slightly more than a year now. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the answer is Sergei Bobrovsky's uh, contract. Yes. And I considered it. It's bad. I think you can say that that's turned out the worst and that it will be the worst going forward. I have to admit, I don't think that it was fair to assume that Bobrovsky would be this awful this quickly. Except on the basis of, well, goalies are kind of crazy. Anything can happen. And so they were certainly inviting some of this risk, but it came up snake eyes for them in a really brutal way. And so I was kind of on the fence about that. I also, the thing about this is the move that we did pick, I think we agreed on this one, was a combination. Yeah. It combined a signing and a trade, but I think that that was fair because they were pretty much simultaneous. And... It was quite clear that they were supposed to be, that they were connected. Like, they made the trade in anticipation of signing this player to an extension, which they did. And it was Jean-Gabriel Pajot going from Ottawa to the New York Islanders. Uh, I should say what they did. The Islanders gave a first, which is top three protected this year. So if the Isles do win the lottery, then it rolls over a year. Uh, a second, which is unconditional. And then a third, which only conveys if the Islanders win the Stanley Cup, which, you know, I guarantee you no one would give a shit about. So basically, let's say a first and a second. And then they signed Peugeot for six years at five million per. Peugeot was a decent player. I want to preface this by saying I'm not ragging on him. There are lots of teams that would be very happy to have him at 3C. But... He's having the hottest shooting year of his life. He had 24 goals in 60 games this year because he was shooting insanely hot in a way he's probably not going to keep doing. He turns 28 in November. 
I would not be surprised if this year was the last time he hit 40 points. He's done it before, but it may not continue, or it might. But giving up a meaningful amount of draft capital and then signing him to above market for like a good third line center is very questionable to me. I just don't see why you needed to pay at that level and to commit yourself that way. And so it kind of combined a bad UFA contract with a bad rental trade, if you know what I mean. And so the combined outlay for the Islanders is, you know, a first and a second and a decent amount of money. It just combines so many aspects of not being very good that I can't say I like it at all. The other contenders were like Tyler Myers, who signed for five years at six million for Vancouver, and he's just like he's not very good. Yeah, uh, and then obviously Bobrovsky. Yeah, I I think I don't know. I, I, the Pajot move is bad. I'm glad we mentioned it because it's a good thing to talk about how Lou is not like a panacea the way a lot of dumb parts of the Leafs fandom thinks he is. Mm -hmm. But um, Bobrovsky's probably the worst overall. Has to be. I think Bobrovsky will end the worst. Like, I think, like, if Bobrovsky goes the way he's going, that's the worst contract in the NHL and it goes forever and there's nothing it can do. It could devastate the franchise. There's, like, a, a faint outside chance that the Bobrovsky contract is a meaningful factor in that franchise being relocated. Yeah, it, it's really a truly like... awful contract. <laughs> yeah, um, so you know what? In, in fairness, I'll revise it and say that the Peugeot one is interesting for what it combines. But in the end, yeah, it probably just is Bobrovsky. Well, and, and you can you can sort of see the idea with Bobrovsky. Mm -hmm. It's dumb, but there's an idea there. Peugeot yeah. just seems like a... I guess they're both misevaluations. With Bobrovsky, it's a misevaluation about how goaltenders tend to age. Yeah. Um... And I guess the volatility inherent in goaltending. And with Pajot, it's just a misevaluation of him as a player. Yeah, well, they paid for a shooting spike. That's it. Yeah. And you shouldn't do that. Like, you really should not be paying for shooting spikes in the year of our Lord 2020. It just isn't, you know, like we've seen this movie too many times. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I have to say, I, I, I've defended some parts of Lou's legacy in Toronto, and I will continue to do that because I think that's fair. I think sometimes people condemn him unnecessarily. I have to say his Islanders tenure has been sneakily disastrous aside from hiring Barry Trotz. And there's a pretty decent chance that in two or three years, they're thinking, oh shit, another like Lou Lamorello time bomb that he left us with. Yeah. I, I guess it's been rough over there. So mm -hmm. yeah, but yeah, Borowski is probably the right answer um this was this uh last one that you suggested which was a uh, player who was previously underrated but is now properly rated uh, the louis erickson memorial award probably we could call this one. yeah um uh I, I had a pick for this do you want to go for it yeah, no you go for it go for it okay uh, i said sean couturier because i think for the longest time he was like the sneaky like, this guy should be getting Selkie consideration pick, and rightly so. I think everyone has figured it out now. It helps when these players have a breakout offensive season, which uh, 
he has the last two years, actually. Like, he jumped up to uh, 31 goals and 76 points, and then he did the trick again. And he's on a bit of a slower pace this year, but it's still very good. I think now we all know Sean Couturier is really good. Like, it's been established, and I still sometimes see people saying, like, you know who's super underrated? Sean Couturier. No, I think I think people who are paying attention know. He's, yeah, I mean, this is always tricky, guy. right? I, I think... Yeah. I think Michael McCurdy said this where it's like, when you say that a player is underrated, really you're just saying you're smarter than other people. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess by making a war that's about this, we're, we're saying we're smarter than the people who Sarah are saying they're smarter than other people. So oh, we're, we're complicit. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it, I guess it depends on who you're talking to, right? Because like Couturier arguably should have won a Selkie already, and he hasn't. So maybe he's underrated by like P, PHWA writers, but I like everyone who's familiar with Corsi Rel knows that he is, you know, one of the best defensive centers in the world. So, yeah, I think he's a valid choice. Um, I, w- I was debating between him, uh, Alexander Barkov, and Jonathan Huberto. Huberto is another... I guess maybe Huberto doesn't quite fit into this yet. I think he will, like, next year. Because mm. uh, Huberto is, like, on pace for 100 points or something. And a lot of people didn't realize he was that good, but everyone knows he's pretty good. The thing about Huberto is that I think that there's a problem called the Florida Vortex, where... No one watches them. Right. I'm sorry, but it's no one does. And so it's quite possible to, you know, miss uh, the point production. Huberdeau had insane point doubles. Like, he cleared 90 points um, last year. And I think that caught people off guard, but he was, like, a third overall pick. So maybe it shouldn't be super surprising. I think Barkov has gotten... The Barkov narratives have gotten really weird over time. <laughs> you know, like, he was considered underrated, and then they were like, he's actually a sneakily great defensive center, and he became kind of a hipster thing, where it was like, you mentioned Barkov to show that you knew about underrated players, and then people started pointing out, it's like, his results aren't actually that great from a defensive perspective. So, yeah, he's actually, he's like a kind of a funhouse mirror for me, rating-wise. Yeah. And then, um, I think, I don't know, maybe this is picking on small markets, but, like, someone like Clayton Keller, I think, when he gets discussed, it's like, oh, Clayton Keller, what an underrated young superstar. And it's like, no, I think people properly rate him. I think people think he's good. He's, he's not, like, a... He's good. He's not a yeah. transformative franchise-altering superstar, but he's, he's a good player. Yeah, he can be first line on a good team. Yeah, I don't love his contract, uh, although it's looked better this year than I thought it would, but... Yeah, I think, mm. I think players like that, like, that's the kind of archetype to me of people who, like, maybe used to be underrated, but are no longer underrated because people just kind of acknowledge that. Um, yeah. I think Keller, yeah, Keller's another guy who will probably be there in a, in a couple years, right? Right now, maybe he is still a little underrated or underappreciated with respect to the the, um, the broader media. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe a, a Leafs pick here. I, th- I think people properly rate William Nylander. You think it, like it's, it's come around now and people have figured it out? In a league-wide sense, yes. Yeah, I, think, I, I think do people, think properly yeah. like think William Nylander is a good first line winger which is what he is yeah and uh, that's that's fair I have to say I think that if you are in the fever dream that is leaves Twitter you probably are used to like there's a community of kind of jackasses I guess is the best way to describe them that devote themselves to like being very mad at William Nylander all the time and also going at him with, like, very thinly veiled homophobia and all sorts of stuff. And those guys are just complete shitheads. 
and there's no getting around it. And they're so stupid and obnoxious that I think that if you spend too much time online, which is a mistake, uh, you could get preoccupied with how bad their evaluations of him are, of how unfair they are. When I think in the broader league, maybe, there's more of a recognition that he's a good player for the simple reason that he just scored 31 goals. You know, that goes a long way. Goal totals matter. And if you score 30 goals in Toronto, people hear about it because people are forced to hear about the Leafs in the NHL. So I I think last year he was probably underrated because he was coming off a, a very difficult season. Now it's probably among people who are kind of in the league at large, people are have sort of figured out where he should be now. He's a first-line winger. Yeah, I mean, granted, if he has one more bad shooting year, I bet it flips the other way. Yeah. But as of right now, I think people understand that he's a very good player. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a, a good point. Cool. So I think that uh, covers what we want to so, thank you all for listening. Uh, you can find all of my and stuff at pensionfanpuppets.com. You can also find a lot of other uh, Leafs news uh, and all the NHL news that's being broken um, as kind of this COVID virus continues to persist. We're doing the top 25 under 25 right now. We're heading into kind of the business end of that. So, you'll see more from me in terms of writing because I, I don't feel comfortable writing about the prospects because I don't know them that well. But uh, the NHL players I'm more confident about. So, I'll be writing about uh, two guys who are going to show up later on the list. You can catch all of that on pinterpenpops.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFullerman. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.